Hi guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, I'm so excited to be launching a new series, which is going to be a bit more conversational with guests and focusing on huge societal issues that affect all of us, just so you might get a bit more of a basic understanding of these huge issues, their roots really in our history. Um, In this one, I'm going to be talking about my own issues with anxiety and my guests um, experience with depression so if you don't want to hear about that if you think you might be triggered by it um, then please don't listen Uh, it's not worth it but I have left timestamps in the description um, which are links to the history bits so if you still want to learn about um, the social stigmas and techniques used in Britain to deal with mental health and particularly the gender aspect, please do listen. So we're just going to ease into it because obviously it's going to be a little bit difficult. But Tess, do you want to just talk about your your relationship yeah, with mental health? Yeah, so um, where to begin? Okay, so when I was quite young, about nine or ten, I started to develop sort of feelings of anxiety, got quite anxious at school, primary school, so still quite young. Um, And, you know, I kind of was okay with coping with it, went to secondary school, um, began having therapy. I was waiting for quite a while for therapy, so I had, you know, saw multiple different people whilst I was waiting for um, some proper sort of counselling sessions. So, and then at about 14, 15, um, I started to really get low mood, uh, low self-esteem. I started to feel quite unhappy, quite sad. And this developed into quite low sort of feelings and feelings of depression, um, which was really, you know, really quite tough. Um, And I, you know, I was very, very, um, oh God, I'm trying to think about how I phrase this. I, you know, I shut a lot of people out. I felt extremely disconnected from everyone else. I was quite selfish, you know, very self-absorbed into how I was feeling. You know, it is an illness where you're constantly focused on yourself because you're in such a horrible situation and you're, you can't control the way you feel. It's really very isolating. I mean, that's how I sort of best explain it to people who maybe aren't familiar with it or don't have such an understanding um yeah isolating and just very very low mood and very very sad um is the best way I'd explain it um and I yeah I had therapy for this and it was it was useful it was it was really good and it I think talking to someone who I didn't know they didn't see me in a social situation they weren't related to me it was just a complete stranger who I was building a relationship with, I was able to be a lot more honest. And I think being honest in that really allowed me to get the full sort of, sort of, you know, not healing, but I think the full, oh, I don't know how to phrase it, um, the most out of therapy that I could. And I still think now, you know, I should have been a lot more honest. And, you know, I, I lived with this constant fear which was, you know, I mean, the the actual depression itself was overwhelming, but this other second sort of massive thing I was dealing with was actually hiding how I was feeling from 
basically everyone, you know, and I think you can relate to that as well, Lily. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people can. It was so, you know, I was only about 14, 15, um, at sort of the, the peak of this. And, you know, the the only thing that I thought was actually worse than the way I felt was, oh gosh, if people had actually found out that I was going through this. Obviously, you know, my, my parents, my family, obviously eventually sort of found out, um, which was which was a good thing, of course. But, you know, I never, ever would have dreamt about telling my friends or anyone else knowing because I was so paranoid about, yeah, gosh, look, look, look at us now, Lily. Look how far we've come. Um, but, I, you know, I was so worried that I was going to be judged, that people were going to ask me about it. You know, I, I couldn't even deal with it myself, that having to talk to other people was really quite challenging and I'm sure you can you know you can understand that and I think that also is definitely related to the fact that you know even four or five years ago I definitely don't feel that mental health was really openly discussed nowhere near as much it is now um you know now I mean it's brilliant everyone you know you've got it on social media everyone's become a lot more aware and I think the social understanding has really really grown you know, even four or five years ago, which doesn't seem like that long, you know, I never remember seeing it on social media, never remember people talking about it at school. Obviously, I was quite a bit younger. So, you know, there was also sort of a sense of immaturity with the people I was around. But I never, I mean, I don't think I heard mental health ever spoken about apart from when I was in therapy or with my parents or with, you know, medical professionals, you know, I never really, really heard my friends openly discuss it um, compared to now. I mean, even even when I was turned about 17, we were all talking about it, um, which I think was great. And possibly also because maybe you, you know, you were quite open with your with yourself, which I think was so nice to see and was so brilliant that we all sort of came together. Yeah, I think it was really helpful for both of us. But um, yeah, because I was going to talk to you like about the awareness side of things because I was a little bit later than you. I also haven't suffered yeah. particularly with depression, which is, I think, affected it because obviously one of the symptoms with depression is that you want to hide it. Um, I mean, I've had it a little bit, but I think for me, <laughs> because my anxiety is so overt, like I literally cannot hide it. And like, I've been thinking a lot about it recently. And one of the triggers is like, like too much sound exposure like large crowds um like things going like beyond my control and you find all of these things at like social events and like parties and nightclubs like I've had so many Mm. panic attacks in in nightclubs and it's just ridiculous because like I love it I love going out with my friends but like it's a real hot spot for me and like yeah I started having panic attacks when I was like 14, 15, and it was like, I remember having one like in the sea and then like on planes and like. Yeah, I remember, I remember that. Yeah. I also remember how people, because I remember I was quite close to you and yeah. I could almost sort of tell, but then I also saw the way people were reacting was in a really good yeah, way. Definitely. And people were yeah, definitely. Really really I remember certain, yeah, certain people really helping. And even for me, I was almost like, oh my gosh, you know, this is so, 
this is what it should this is how people yeah. should respond you yeah know? and I think weirdly I had a real because I feel like the last year was probably the worst for me like because I went to a therapist like when I first started having it just to be like what's going on I don't know what's going on at all and she was like look it's probably just like exam stress just like keep going like here are some breathing techniques it'll probably sort itself out I started having headaches as well um at school mm. and I ended up getting glasses and like now I see that like having these headaches is like a symptom of anxiety and stress and I'm like I've literally just worsened my eyesight <laughs> like, it's so annoying but um what's I gonna say yeah but then like it just got progressively worse really and I think I probably incorporated yeah. it into my identity as well which actually because I'm not like oh sometimes is, I have panic attacks yeah. I'm like I have anxiety and like I feel like it yeah, does begin to define you but like in the last year I started just having like weeks where I would just be not myself and I'd get behind on work and like talking to friends and like even like my personal hygiene like <laughs> I used to just like roll out of bed and like I could barely even manage to like wash my face and I was like like forcing myself to school because I had so much work to do and it was just really unhealthy and then yeah I think definitely like more recently I feel like I've emphasized a lot more with you because it's like you you realize it's not just when you're like crying at a party it's when you're no, like no. lying on your bed, like staring at the ceiling yeah. for like two hours, and like what the hell is going yeah. on? Yeah, and I, I think, you know, you mentioned also the nightclubs and obviously when you're, sometimes you're out and things can trigger you, you know, if you're drinking or if you're, if you see certain people or in that sort of, you know, environment, things can trigger you. And, you know, you always have those sort of stereotypes of, you know, girls getting upset and mm, girls crying. Definitely. But yeah. when, you, when you drink alcohol, it actually brings, it can, you know, bring out a lot of emotions that you're feeling anyway. Definitely. Um, that you'd probably still be feeling, you know, when you're, when you're home and you're, you yeah. know, it's a different day. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like I definitely was like, oh, I'm an emotional drunk. Like, I yeah. can't drink spirits or they'll make so, me cry. Mm. And it's like. <laughs> you actually have anxiety and mm. drinking alcohol is making it come out kind of and you but you just don't and you can't control yeah. it and it's a sort of loss of control which is very hard to, to sort of deal with yeah absolutely yeah I, I spend so much time just like especially like now I've just come to accept it but like whenever I'd have like another panic attack or another week of just being so down I'd be like but I fixed it last time like why is this still a problem like I'm so lucky like and I was like but I exercise every day and that's meant to stop you feeling Mm. anxious that's that's not how it works a lot of people yeah a lot of people will say you know it's impossible to feel sad when you exercise but yeah it's just it's not you know obviously exercise does release endorphins and it does make you feel better but yeah if you're in a mindset anyway trust yeah, me it's very exactly. hard to just because also you know you're alone with if you're going on a run you're alone with your thoughts you know you're still yeah, exactly your brain doesn't just shut down um but, but then, yeah and also yeah. like especially with exercise I think I just stopped doing it because I loved it I was just like if I don't exercise I'm gonna have a panic attack mm. and once I even had a panic attack because I like injured my arm and I was like I'm not going to be able to go to the gym for the next week yeah and, then you and it literally so, made me have yeah. a panic attack and like 
that made me realize I was like whoa I really need to like chill out and like obviously I'm lucky enough that I don't have like an eating disorder or like a like really unhealthy relationship with exercise yeah but like I was I I did feel I was getting close at that Mm. point and I was like oh my god why I've become so reliant on it and it's such a good coping mechanism but also it's like the way you like just because it's a good way to deal with it doesn't mean that's the only thing you should do you should have I think multiple things or try and have sort of different things because if you're always doing the same thing if that thing then you cannot do or gets taken away then you think oh no what you know how can I deal with this and that's when I think you can really freak out like you said when you injured your arm I remember you that's you sort of talking about that and saying oh you know I can't do any exercise and you just think well what am I going to do you're you sort of panic a bit and think like if I can't do that then I'll like breakdown. What Tess and I are talking yeah. about here is nothing new. Um, humankind has been a plagued by mental illness, but equally plagued by this burning desire to understand minds and emotions and illnesses. Um, since kind of we began, I mean, as early as six thousand five hundred BCE, um, we have relics of trepan skulls in France. And trepanation was used by cultures across the world as late as the Mayan and Aztec empires um, in order to essentially release the demons. So a hole was drilled into uh, the affected person's skull. Um, and this was sometimes used in head wounds um, or after death. But it was also used to deal with epilepsy um, and mental illnesses and any kind of abnormal behavior essentially in a person and there's evidence from these skulls that actually people survived after the surgery so it's kind of our first example of surgery in many ways and I think it all comes back to the societies which people lived in at the time cultures were very much god-fearing rule-abiding conventional people um and there was this belief that a mental illness or any kind of abnorm- abnormality was actually an individual punishment from these vengeful gods. Um, if you look at, you know, the Greek and Roman myths, these gods were believed to hold grudges um, and have mortal enemies. And there was this idea that this was actually a shame on the entire community because clearly, just like when a harvest... Um, was ruined there was this idea that it was the community's fault or this person's fault for having disobeyed the gods that they received this ill luck ill fate but actually we do see that there is scientific advancement already at this point you've probably heard of the hippocratic oath which is what medics take when they join the industry and Hippocrates is now seen as the father of medicine. Obviously, at that time, how great his influence was is disputed, obviously, with all these kind of heroic figures. However, he came up with the idea of four humours, which needed to be balanced within the body in order to um, live a healthy life. And these were black bile, yellow bile, blood and phlegm. Um, And in order to kind of rebalances it was suggested uh bloodletting fasting purging and these all sound really grim to be honest but he also suggested exercise reducing your alcohol intake uh changing your job 
just living a less stressful life. And his work was built upon by Aristotle and following philosophers. Um, Galen built on it probably most heavily. He actually suggested that these four humours represented the the British, the human brain um, and our personality. So slight differences would make us have a cool head or a hot head. Um, and he, that was kind of the very, very early form of psychology. And obviously none of this is valid scientifically today, but people really used um, Greek philosophers as their influence. I mean, particularly Galen, he's the one who comes up with the theory about hysteria, which is that women have wandering wombs. Um, when a woman is in emotional distress or has a mental illness, it's because their womb won't settle in their body. Um, clearly had a lot of understanding about female anatomy, but they haven't started looking inside yet, essentially. Um, and people thought that in order to resolve this issue, the woman has to be married. And that kind of starts off this train of responding to a female mental illness with control, confinement, nunneries, convents, asylums marriage as well anything which would kind of keep them silent. yeah so what would you say does work for you um gosh well i think i think partly also because of lockdown i think going outside mm. you know even if you're not actually doing physical exercise being outside and you don't realize until maybe you're actually out there how good it actually feels you know you can be in your room all day and be fine but once you go outside you, you sit and you realize oh you know this is actually really what I needed I think the slight problem is when I was actually going sort of through um um the anxiety and depression I wasn't really coping I mean I was sort of you know I obviously was having therapy and I was talking to people and unfortunately I was quite reliant you know I was quite um I was quite um against almost mm. trying things I was you know I didn't want to get involved in you know exercises they would give me um, I had CBT which is like a type of um, cognitive behavioral therapy you have and I just was so paranoid and so scared that nothing was going to work I was so unwilling yeah to almost get myself out and it's you, you think you think well, well why wouldn't you try you know surely you want to get better but it's also when you've been feeling something for so long and you just you sort of lose you do sort of lose hope but you're also I think part of you is also scared to almost not be in that situation because you don't know what life will be like without yeah. it that's what yeah of course I would say. but I think it's interesting you say that because like I can't remember like it, it might be like two months ago now but you were talking to me and you're like oh god like I'm really struggling with everything which is yeah. going on I feel like I'm gonna get worse again yeah. and I was like well like I'm finding that journaling is helping me mm. and I was like do you want to try that and you're like I just don't want to put my thoughts on paper and I feel like it's the same thing it's like yeah. you by saying them out loud to someone yeah. it makes it yeah, all real but yeah. the only way to deal with it is if it's exactly. real like even I mean gosh even even now I even talking to my parents but I mean god I would never say I would never actually say oh I was depressed I would never actually say that I was so scared about just saying that word and obviously mm. that's what it was but now I'm older you know even yeah. though I've, I'm so much older now and I've gone through it and I know you know I've done psychology I know what it's about it's still that sort of fear that the almost the same fear I had all those years ago and you know yeah 
about talking about and it. I used to, like, yeah. I, yeah, because I always just like laugh. I just make jokes about it, like laugh it off. And it's like saying a joke about you having a panic attack is not telling someone that you've had a panic attack. It's it's not the same. No. Do you see what yeah. I? I don't know if that makes sense. I kind of know what you mean. But like, but like avoiding it and like making jokes out of it. That's not the same as saying. I've got anxiety. I'm really worried about this mm. because you're just like masking it again. You are. It's just co- it's coping mechanisms and yeah, definitely. It is tricky. I mean, even now, you know, obviously people are gonna you know people are gonna listen and people you know obviously I have spoken to people about it a bit more now, but I don't think people will ever gonna see the extent of it. That's and that's still scary. No. You know, even for both of us, it's still probably quite you know even yeah talking. I mean, I remember talking to my sister about it the other day and. You know, she said, now I look back and I think you're so young. And actually the reality of what was going on was so much, there was so much more to it than I think anyone really saw. Um, Yeah. But. Yeah, that's very true. It's just, yeah. Yeah, because I've still got, I've still got like no idea about your experience really. Like obviously you told me like this stuff, but like there's so, it's it's more than that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and like you um, said with the whole, you know, when, when lockdown, um, you know, in summer, in lockdown, you know, I actually really coped with it fine. Out, out, of, out of everyone in my family, I probably coped with it the best. You know, I was working, I was I was exercising every day, I was earning money, you know, I was allowed, I could go outside, go to the beach. But the winter lockdown, I definitely found a lot harder because it's cold. You know, it actually hit me, you know, this might not, this could last for a long time. You know, I wasn't yeah. seeing people. Yeah. It's kind of isolating. And, you know, obviously part of me was really worried that, oh, gosh, if I'm just going to sit in my room all day, you know, am I going to just yeah. get into this spiral? And I don't think I would have, you know, it's certainly not to the extent that it was um, when I was younger. But it is that, you know, once you've gone through that thing once, it, you're also a lot more likely to actually experience it again when you're, you know, not certainly, mm. but it is, you know, you can be more prone because you sort of understand and maybe you just have that sort of yeah mindset. and you've like I also do feel like you develop like it's like with anything like when you like learn like to write even and like your brain like it knows that connection exactly I feel like it's the same and I feel like that's why I much more quickly go to a panic attack as time progresses um Britain I suppose I mean England at this point kind of finds its feet in the world we go through the dark ages and come out as a kind of formalized christian monarchy um obviously before there were pagans there were christians there were um viking descendants roman descendants anglo-saxon descendants basically everyone kind of pretty much conforms to the same religious ideas and so now the way to kind of deal with um, mental illnesses was to do exorcisms um, any kind of religious things um, using saints um, to pray for the recovery of a mental illness but there was a more willingness willingness to accept different explanations for example with the black death obviously not a mental illness but had a huge impact on European society It was believed that it was a punishment brought by God at the time. However, people were using Hippocrates for humours in order to deal with it. So there was kind of this idea that whatever explanation helps the most, any kind of 
closure on what's happening to our bodies that we don't understand was kind of willingly accepted. And then we do gradually see the role of religion in this area decline. For example, um, with Henry VIII and him breaking away from the Catholic Church in Rome, we see Bethlehem Hospital pass from religious to a civil institution. This would later become known as Bedlam. It's infamous for its role as the only mental hospital in Britain for an incredibly long time. It had 50 beds. And so to be admitted into the hospital, you had to be both very mentally ill and probably have the means to do so, which meant that, again, most people with mental illnesses were living in society among um, their neighbours. However, there was another man who would help out, um, and his name was Richard Napier. He had a kind of house in the country, and he'd use all kinds of um, techniques, both gruesome and, I guess, tranquil, in order to um, respond to the different problems that each of his patients um, faced. Again, we still see the kind of punishment of women, um, this time probably more through convents and nunneries um, than before. And there is remaining this belief about uh, women being controlled by their reproductive organs. Talk about male mental health, obviously, because that's the, the yeah. statistics are staggering. But okay. how do you feel like your position as a woman, how has that affected your experience? Yeah, well, I think... Oh, gosh, it's hard because I haven't... I mean, I've spoken to guys, you know, boys and men about it, but I think... I think, yeah, as a, as a woman, you know, stereotypically, you do perhaps talk more and you do... I think as I've definitely realised more as I'm older, we're, you know, even in our girl group, we're a lot more likely to talk about things and we're also maybe perhaps more perceptive about, mm. you know, seeing how each other's doing... I know I, it's kind of tricky for me though because I was still extremely um, reliant on letting letting anyone actually know and showing people and, you know, part of that maybe did come from being a girl, you know, I was scared people were going to judge me, I was scared about looking, you know, weak and, you know, just people, just I think people knowing there was just this fear. I also think, um, you know, it's great that that women do talk to each other. And I also think that maybe because women are more open and more likely to perhaps um, notice things, it makes them actually more likely to go and seek help. And I think that's a really... Because, you know... Yeah, definitely. Women are actually twice as likely to be diagnosed with a mental health illness. And I think that comes from the fact that women perhaps are more likely to actually seek help, whereas I feel that men... um, you know, may not want to actually take that step because, you know, of society, which is which is awful. But I can completely see how that's still going on now, even though it's so much more spoken about and understood. I think it's really that, I think the male, we really need to do more as a society to sort of make yeah. it. Because you know, even more women actually attempt suicide. More women are attempting suicide, but more men are still... How do we get to this point now where 79% of suicides are committed by people who identify as men? Considering the mistreatment of women's mental health over centuries, 
I think it all comes back to the Victorian period. Um, obviously, the first kind of victims of a binary society are non-binary people, um, trans people, LGBTQ people, anyone who doesn't conform to the kind of um, demanded uh, gender norms, essentially. So, And by this, I mean... The idea of a man and wife, the man provides, the wife stays at home, they have a run of children um, and work until the end of their days, etc. And I think in order to understand the problem we have now with uh, the statistics of male mental health issues, which largely comes from the unwillingness of men to come forward and talk about it, comes from this era... um, It's basically a big conservative backlash to the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was kind of like the Georgian period. And this was when people were talking about equal rights, uh, women's suffrage, um, basically really progressive, quite radical ideas at this point. And kind of the Victorians turned around and were like, we're having no more of that. And... In fact, under the Georgians, and I think this does have a lot to do with George III, who very famously is known to be mad, or basically he had, he really suffered with mental illnesses throughout his reign. It was really cool to be like emotional and nervous um, among men, particularly upper class men. In fact, because there was scientific research going into the central nervous system, there was this idea that actually um, good people Good blood meant bad nerves. So it was cool to kind of be like reclined on a so not a sofa, a settee <laughs> with a flannel on your head. Um, woe is me, revealing your inner emotions through letters and diaries and literature. Um, men weren't really comfortable doing that because it was cool, basically. Um, and the Victorians were basically, well, that's enough of that for one thing. And it chimes in with the Industrial Revolution. This reinforces um, the idea that a man goes to work, woman stays at home, because there was huge um, opportunities in the labour market um, and society constructed itself to cope with this huge change by creating very rigid uh, rules um, in what society did. Charles Darwin popped up, um, People start listening more to science, obviously, um, just like pretty much everyone for a very long time. Charles Darwin believed that women were biologically inferior to men. Um, That would continue for a very long time, unfortunately. Um, And this reinforced these ideas. We also have um, the power of the military of the public school system which created this idea of the stiff upper lip um in general there's just this idea that men are good christian men because protestantism is on the rise they go to work um, in this brilliant new industry that we've built um and then they come home they put bread on the table and then they shut up essentially Meanwhile, women were angels of the household. Um, They had to look after the family. They had to conform to their role as mothers and wives. Everyone's kind of stuck in this same patriarchal society, which doesn't really allow room to breathe and discuss emotions. 
Then we have World War One, um, and that that starts to shake these ideas because suddenly men of all ranks, of all positions, of all classes, of all races, they come home and they're absolutely traumatised. We later call it shell shock and we now know it's PTSD, but pretty much an entire generation of men saw friends, brothers, fathers die. Um, they had, you know, bombs exploding around them and still they, they couldn't talk about it. Um, and it was only really until World War II that people... Men had to, well, following World War II, men could no longer hide it, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, in fact, there's a really interesting article by Ali Haggett um, in which she talks about masculinity and mental health. This helped me with a lot of my research um, on this topic. And she talks about how actually men started developing somatic symptoms following the Second World War. And by this, she means physical manifestations of their emotional distress. So they couldn't go to the doctor and say, I'm depressed. I'm having real anxious thoughts. I think I have um, any sort of mental illness because... A, they couldn't talk about it. B, the majority of the doctors were male and had grown up in the same situation and they wouldn't talk about their emotions. Um, and so they were, the only way that they could reveal how they were feeling was through a physical symptom. And this could be obesity, erectile dysfunction, alcoholism, any kind of demonstration that they were not okay at all. But no one still could talk about it, even though it was clear that these men were in distress. And really interestingly, um, medics at that time have looked back and said, we treated men and, and women differently based on our stereotypes in that, at that time. So women were treated with, for psychiatric symptoms. Um, they were treated using therapy and that kind of thing um, whereas men were treated for their physical symptoms if a man needed time off work because of his mental illness they would give him a slip saying he had a physical illness because it wasn't comfortable for anyone not even his colleagues or his boss to know about this and I think this is probably why we have a much higher rate of lobotomies um, and incarcerations for women at this point um obviously i've already talked about this idea of hysteria that stayed throughout this period too um i mean i don't I, there was still this idea about the reproductive organs controlling you um in america they picked up a lot more on freud um britons didn't really like him uh, as much um and actually at stockton state hospital uh five women were given clitoridectomies because it was believed that if they can experience uh, sexual feelings then their emotional distress would be cured that they would no longer have a mental illness and people describe how lobotomies completely changed patients. You know, they would be destroyed as human beings. Um, we seem to be unable to stop drilling in people's heads because even though so much scientific research has happened, we still had these ideas. And now we're coming to a point where men are feeling more comfortable. And a lot of that is down to social media, but I think it's also massively down to the huge cultural changes which have happened in Britain. I mean, we're much more diverse, both, you know, racially um, and gender-wise, if you look at workplaces. And I think that 
greater acceptance of LGBTQ people. Um, in general, we have seen great growth um, as a culture um, since World War II. Um, I think there's so much more to go. I tend to be quite cynical about this kind of thing, but in many ways, so much has happened. So many civil rights movements have changed the face of the country. And now we see this point where men are feeling more comfortable. There's so many great charities which are trying to get men to come forward and kind of fight off that social stigma about talking about it. The shame which people feel a bit that coming forward and opening up is a feminine trait when in fact it's a human one. And actually, there's a lot of debate in gender studies that all these papers published about gender and mental health and what needs to be done to... Um, help different genders with their mental health issues is far too focused on women and non-binary people and not on men and I think that's an interesting discussion because so much perhaps we see too much overcompensation when it comes to women and I'm not obviously diminishing the mistreatment of women and non-binary people throughout history I think it's terrible but I also think that we can't view these theories that have failed in the past because of their basis on stereotypes for example that repulsive theory that because black people have smaller heads they're therefore biologically inferior to white people that doesn't obviously that has the greatest impact on black people um, and the way they are treated but I think rather than thinking, well, the theories were written by white men and therefore white men are represented um, and they are understood. I think by basing this supposed science on stereotypes and misunderstandings, yes, it has maintained the superiority of white men in a patriarchal society, but it's also confined them to their stereotypes as well. We're done. Are we done? Is there anything else you want to add? Yeah, scrape the barrel. We've got lots of oh things that we can rethink about later and make ourselves feel bad. <laughs> oh my god! I literally but, like. I don't know how. I just. Yeah, I think that was really good though. Yeah. Honestly, no, I really enjoyed like, that. I really. I almost needed that. Yeah, um, I, I that was like, quite cathartic like, for I've, me. I feel like I've been thinking of thinking about it for so long and literally been yeah. talking to myself about what I was going to say for so long. Yeah. And yeah, now... I did that. I literally was like trying to talk about like, like my experience and everything. And I was like, oh mm. my god, I feel so sad for my I younger know, self. I know, I know. And I remember thinking like, oh my god, you know, how am I going to sound? Am I going? Are people going to understand? Is this going to seem like absolute rubbish to people? How are people going to? Because even I mean, even now, I'm like, oh gosh, how are people going to respond to this? Are people going to? Yeah, ask? I know. I'm like, no. I'm worried that like, what if it hasn't even recorded? <laughs> like. <laughs> What if I lose the audio now? Oh my I God. can't. I didn't, I didn't I I didn't know if I can go through this again. This again. <laughs> I mean. Thank you so much for listening all this way. I know it's longer than the normal ones, but you're going to have to get used to it um, because I like it. Um, if you have been affected by anything we've spoken about, um, whether you identify with some of the symptoms or uh, the feelings that me and Tess talked about, um, then please go and talk to someone, whether that's a friend or a family member. If you don't want to do that, talk to someone online, write it down or go to a GP. Um, Samaritans are a great charity to help. 
just do whatever you need to do um, to te- let someone know how you're feeling and just air your thoughts. Um, I hope you also enjoyed my thoughts on gender and masculinity. Um, if you don't agree, how fun. Talk to me about it. Um, I'm very grateful that you're listening. I hope you enjoy the new series. Um, yeah. Peace out. Yeah. <laughs>